Wow. What a year it has been. A year ago, we were celebrating Easter from our homes, all hunkered down a few weeks into the craziness that has been the COVID pandemic. I was in the downstairs office at our former building where we, where we had office, standing alone in a room, staring at a camera, trying with all my might to envision your faces on the other end of it. And here we are this morning, we said a couple of hundred of your close friends were up on top of the parking garage this morning watching the sunrise over Houston and we're worshiping here and later we'll be out on the, the front lawn here all together beginning to, to experience the thawing out, the dawning the, as, the, as the sun comes up over us recognizing that we have endured a year like no other, one that has in many ways preyed upon the fears that are natural to human beings. There's, there's many psychologists say there's a, there's a series of fears that all human beings in some form or fashion share and have to wrestle with and make sense of. And over the last year, those very common baseline fears have been preyed upon in different ways for us as a people. These are the fears of death, loss of freedom, separation and loneliness, the fears of humiliation and judgment. When you think back about the landscape over the last year, all the confusion we were in a year ago trying to make sense of what is this and am I going to die? How serious is this as we're trying to navigate those things? And, and then we all went home and are cut off and loneliness set in and the, the weight of political turmoil and social unrest of, of ongoing challenge and difficulty and division and heartache and injustice. And there were points where it just felt like it was going to swallow us. But we as a people, we are Easter people, and we gather together this morning, and I want to extend a hand of invitation to you. The invitation to step into, to consider afresh, with fresh ears, with the eyes of your hearts being opened, the promises of Easter, which incidentally calm every one of our fears and heal our hearts. Then we come to a place recognizing, yes, it has been a crazy year, but we are a people marked by real, living, textured, nuanced, robust hope. And this morning, I want to invite you into it with a fresh perspective, as it were, to... to gain access to those moments that calm our fears and heal our hearts, we're going to do so by kind of going behind the scenes. I love to read biographies, and I've spent a lot of hours devouring the biographies of great people of the past, and I've realized that one of the reasons I, I love to do that is because you get the behind-the-scenes access. You know, these great events in history, but then all of a sudden you're reading the private letters, and this is what I was thinking, and this was what was happening in this room that you don't immediately hear about. That is enticing and exciting to me. And this morning, what I want to invite you into is a non-traditional Easter text that in many ways gives us the, the super behind-the-scenes access. We're going to journey into the throne room of God, into God's very presence, and say, what was it like for God the Father, as Jesus is accomplishing the, the things that we are celebrating today through his, 
his death and his subsequent resurrection on the Sunday morning that followed, that what were the behind the scenes and the presence of the angels with creator God on his throne? I think Revelation 5 in many ways gives us the the behind the scenes story on all of the glories and the promises of Easter. And so I want to invite you into that place believing that as we peer into that room, as we get to see that behind the scenes, we will experience the sort of hope that can transform our desperate tears into exuberant celebration. I want to explore just how that happens in the presence of God together. So if you would, let's dig into Revelation chapter 5, and and we're going to talk about how do desperate tears, how are they transformed into exuberant celebration? And so first, let's see if we can make sense of what do I mean from this text and from our lives by the term desperate tears. Look with me at Revelation 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So let me just set some context for us here. The I in this verse is John, the revelator. Jesus's best friend while he was on earth that late in life was actually put onto an island, exiled on this island for preaching about Jesus. And from that place, he got the behind the scenes view. He got to see glory in advance. And so he says, I'm in this place and I saw on the throne. So he's seeing creator God, the father seated on the throne. And it says that in his hand, and literally it means on his hand. So the imagery is of the father sitting on the throne with an open palm. And in the palm of God's hand is a scroll. This particular text doesn't explain it for us, but if we were to look at the whole of the book of Revelation, what we would learn about that scroll is this. That scroll represents God's plans to rework history, to, as it were, to to deal with sin, to judge sin, to eradicate evil and sadness and death itself, and to usher in his victory and his healing. This is the plan of God written from before the foundations of the earth, bound up and sealed in the palm of his hand. Creator God sits on the throne and he holds it all in the palm of his hand. There he sits. And it says in verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Now, there's, there's three words even in the first half of that verse. Mighty, proclaiming, loud. This isn't just an angel. It's a mighty angel. And he's not just speaking. He's proclaiming or announcing, and he's doing so with a loud voice. This is intended to startle heaven, to stop everyone, to pay attention. Some commentators think that this might be Michael, the archangel. We're not sure, but what we do know is it's a strong angel and a loud voice. And this is what he's asking. Who is worthy to open the scrolls and break its seals? In essence, what the angel is announcing, what he's asking is he's saying, is there anyone worthy? That word worthy means sufficient or able, strong enough and good enough. Is there anyone worthy to take God's plans that have been written and prepared and to unlock them and to work them out in human history? Can anyone actually eradicate sin and execute judgment and bring in hope and forgiving and healing? Can anyone do it? This is the question of the angel as the scroll sits in the palm of God the Father on the throne. And now listen. 
Listen to the silence of heaven that screams about the sinfulness of man. He asked the question, who is worthy? In verse 3 it says, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Do you see that word worthy in verses one through four? What he's saying is, is anyone worthy? And by the end of verse four, the answer is no one is worthy. You see, in many ways, the story of your Bible, if you start at the beginning and you work progressively through, the story of your Bible is a disappointing search for someone who is worthy. Adam is created in the image of God, uniquely made to look like God, given all of the fruit of the garden. He's told to eat freely and to reign with me, experience my presence. But Adam trusts the voice of the dragon that slithers in rather than the voice of his good God. And then Noah finds favor in God's eyes a few chapters later, and he is He is delivered from the waters of judgment. And we start to think, well, maybe in him we're going to reconstitute the humanity through he and his offspring. But then very quickly in the next chapter, he's given to drunkenness and folly, found out an embarrassing sin. And then God finds Abraham and says, you're going to be my friend and I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless the world. But Abraham consistently pawns off his wife in cowardice into the hands of others' men trying to protect his own hide. And we go, this man, so flawed. Moses, the great deliverer who also happens to be a murderer and later in life doesn't trust God, is found out for not trusting his word publicly in front of the people. David, the man after God's own heart, murderer and adulterer, when he wants to build the temple, God says, too much blood on your hands. His son Solomon, the wisest ever made. And all of a sudden, God says, he's the one that's going to build the temple. And when he dedicates the temple, he prays and he ushers in the presence of God. And the presence of God is so thick that everybody has to get out. But then Solomon, in love with himself and in his own pride, gives his heart away to hundreds of foreign women and begins to worship their gods, dividing the very nation of Israel itself. The story of the Bible is a disappointing search for someone who's worthy, who can usher in the plans of God. And the truth is, it's not just the story of the Bible, it's the story of human history, is it not? In all of my reading of biography, I start out with all of these heroes, and then I go, I want to know everything about them. The danger, the danger in wanting to know everything about your heroes is that when you're done, they will no longer be your heroes. This is our experience right now in in cancel culture, that the the statues we want to erect, the people we want to praise, if you press hard enough and you look deeply into it enough, the foundation is always cracked. And then you come to this reality that here's John, Jesus' best friend, preaching faithfully, being exiled for his faithfulness. He too, in this moment, when the strong angel is saying, who is able, who is sufficient, do you know who else is silent? John. And in fact, he's not silent. He wails. He weeps. Because what is dawning on him is this. The state of man before God without Christ 
is hopeless. The state of man before God without Christ is hopeless. What John is realizing as he surveys the landscape is there's no one worthy. No one can eradicate evil because they contribute to it. They're part of the problem. And John's standing there going, and I am implicated as well. And hello, friends, you are too, and so am I. The backdrop to the glorious good news that we have come to celebrate this morning is devastating news. Before we get to the good news, the backdrop is bad news. There's no one worthy. And for this reason, John weeps. What are we going to do? We are before a God riddled with selfishness and brokenness and sin, and we cannot enact his plans and purposes. And into this space comes the most beautiful good news, the most beautiful announcement that surprises John. There John is weeping and wailing, going, no one has been found who is worthy. And then look at verse 5. It says, one of the elders said to him, weep no more. Behold. That means look, see. Here's John with tears streaming down his face. And the elder goes, no, 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 don't weep. And he starts to wipe the tears away. And the elder says, look, Behold, stop and look. And then he makes this announcement. It's a stunning announcement. He says, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The announcement takes Psalm 49 and, I, and from, the, from the prophet Isaiah. He's laying hold of the hope of the people of God for millennia and saying, the one that you've waited for, the one that's going to be of the kingly line, the one who's going to conquer and establish his reign and his rule. Look at the lion. Look at the king. Look. And John wipes his tears and he turns. He's listening to the elder and he looks and it says that between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. In the original language, it literally is a little lamb, a baby lamb. Now catch it. He just heard this stunning announcement. Look at the lion. Look at the king. And he said, I turned and I saw a little bitty lamb. It was a lamb that was standing as though it had been slain or more, or more pointedly as one who had been slaughtered. I saw a slaughtered little lamb. Now, I want you to feel this with me, that this is a picture of behind-the-scenes glory. This is a heavenly scene. This is God the Father interacting with God the Son in the backdrop of all that was accomplished at Easter. We're getting to peer into that place, and this is what I need you to hear loudly and clearly from this text. Jesus in glory still bears his scars. He looks like a little lamb that has been slaughtered. Jesus, there by the throne, is standing, holding out hands that have been scarred. Immediately upon looking at him, you go, that is one who was slaughtered. And I need you to hear that in the backdrop of this reality that none is worthy, I want you to hear the better word that the scars of Jesus speak over your life. The first thing that the scars of Jesus 
say to you and me today from glory is this. He looks at us, particularly in a season where the realities of life at times have been ugly and have preyed upon our fears and have left us feeling bruised and broken and alone in all sorts of ways. Some of you come in carrying shame and guilt and anger and division and frustration. And into that space, Jesus looks at a suffering people and he holds out his hands. And the first thing that I think he says is this, I know. I know. Like what you need to know is that the glory of your God from his throne in the secret place, he looks back at you at your points of greatest disappointment and sadness and wounding and heartache. And he goes, I know. I took it into my very body. I have felt it in ways that no one else in the whole of human history is going to feel it. Sin itself was poured out on me. I felt the shame and the pain and the separation and the agony and the ways that no one else ever fully will. Who else are you going to take it to? I know. And so friends, I want you just first to hear the Easter hope Easter hope doesn't sidestep your sadness. It doesn't deny death. Easter hope does not invite us to be happy, clappy Christians that pretend everything is great. Easter hope endures sadness and conquers death. It doesn't sidestep it. And Jesus stands and says, all of your pain and all of your sadness, bring it here because I, of all people, I know. Oh, but the glories of this king The glories of this king are not exhausted in his compassion. They're only initiated in his compassion. Because did you hear it? He's not just a lamb that was slain. He's a lamb that is standing as though slain. The slaughtered lamb is standing. And he's not just standing. Did you see in the text he has seven horns and seven eyes that are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth? What does that mean? It's apocalyptic language that says he has all power and all knowledge. He sees it all. Listen, the second thing that he says over your wounds and your sadness and over your loss and over your fears and over your scars, he says this, not just I know, but I will make it beautiful. I'm not just compassionate, but I have the power to do something with it. Jesus in glory bears his scars, and his scars themselves have become beautiful. It reminds me of sitting with a friend years ago that said, you know, I've made some decisions that were all mine, and they've ruined the relationship closest to me. And so I've got this like dual pain. It is the pain of loss and loneliness and the guilt and the sadness that, that realizes I'm the one who did it. I said, I don't know how to come back from that one. But as I've gotten to walk with this friend, what, what has become true is that it's those very scars It was that very pain that opened his soul up to finally experiencing the real, satisfying, never-ending love of God. And now, I think what he would tell you if he could is that it doesn't mean that the pain evaporates, and it doesn't mean that the scars are gone, but what it means is that the scars actually, they actually contributed to the beauty. They contributed to the life. St. Teresa of Avila once said this, From glory, 
When we are in glory, looking back at the pain, looking back at the things that cause the scars that we too will have in glory, because our scars don't go away. We will, we will take them into glory with us, and they will contribute to our worship to the King, because from glory, we will look back at all of the pain, and St. Teresa of Avila said, even the most miserable of lives will seem as an inconvenient night in a bad motel. What she was saying is that no matter how much the sadness amassed in this world, the tidal wave of glory that comes from millennia after millennia after millennia will actually take those scars and make them something beautiful that contributes to our worship to the king going, he found me there and he delivered me here. Do you see? It is the scars of the lamb in glory that speak a better word of your life. What he is saying to you is, I know, and I can make it beautiful if you'll give it to me. What right now threatens to make you bitter and to drive you away from the heart of God, the scars of the sun speak a better word saying, bring them to me. I know, and I can make it beautiful. You see, It's in this moment that we begin to realize hope is burgeoning, hope that conquers even in the midst of sadness. And we realize that the one question that has been posed by the great angel, who is worthy, has been answered by the slaughtered lamb. And what word desperate tears and wailing get transformed into exuberant celebration. Look in verse 8 as it dawns on everyone what is happening. It says, verse 8, when he had taken the scroll. Now, this is the idea that God's going, who is going to be able to enact my plans, deal with evil, usher in hope and forgiveness? And the slaughtered lamb strolls boldly into the presence of God and takes the scroll. And at this moment, as it dawns on everyone that one has been found worthy, it says this, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. I love the theology of the new song. It courses through the whole of your Bible, all through the through the Psalms and all through the gathered worship of the people of God, but it stretches even into heaven. And the idea is this, that as long as we have eyes to see the glory of God, we will have to sing new songs. A hundred thousand years from now, those of us who have trusted in Jesus will be awash in his glory, looking directly at God. And even then, a hundred thousand years later, because he's eternal in his purposes and his power and his beauty, we will look at him and go, All the old songs don't suffice. I need a new one. We need another song. We need a new melody. The glory of the slaughtered lamb is so stunning. Sing again. And they sing out with a new song and they say, worthy are you. They've asked the question, who is worthy? And now they're going, you. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. You were slain. It's by your blood that you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God that they shall reign on the earth. They're saying, why is he worthy? Because by his blood, 
He has purchased a whole host of unworthy people and made them priests and kings and queens. It is true that you are unworthy and I am unworthy. The state of man before God without Christ is hopeless. The state of man before God with Christ is royalty. Oh, that God would give us ears to hear. This is good news. And they sing out with sevenfold praise. Did you hear it? It says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. The only other time in the book of Revelation where there is sevenfold praise, it is for God himself. But when the lamb strolls into the presence of God and is worthy to take the scroll, all of the angels go, give the praise to him. He is truly God of gods. You see, the behind the scenes for what was accomplished at the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the stamp of divinity. This is the worthy one who will enact the complete and eternal plans of God. And he's worthy of our praise. And then lastly, I love this verse 13. It says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Can we all just engage our childlike imagination for a moment? I get that this is apocalyptic literature. We're not sure what the direct one-to-one is, but, but let's just get here for a moment. What he says is going to happen is that when the angels begin to worship the Son of God as God himself, as he's recognizing the beauty and the power of the Trinity and all that he has accomplished, and the angels are calling out, it's actually the created order itself can't keep its silence any longer. The book of Isaiah actually says the trees will start clapping their hands. And in this text, what it says is even the animals in the sea the little fish swim to the surface and they pop their mouths up and they start singing the hallelujahs right along with us. The realization, the creator of all has revealed himself in all of his beauty and glory and no one will be able to remain silent. And then in verse 14, the ones who've already fallen on their face, they fall on their face again. It never told us that they got up. I don't know that they did. I, the text is just saying like they got low and they got lower. They couldn't get any lower. They were just saying, all that I have poured out for all that he is because no one is like him. So friends, brothers, sisters, the behind the scenes on the good news of Easter, what it does is it transforms, it transforms desperate tears into exuberant celebration. It invites us into being Easter people. Easter people that don't sidestep suffering, that don't deny death, but we endure suffering and we conquer death by the power of Jesus proclaiming that there's hope on the other side of the grave. We are a people that endure suffering and bear scars and say, yes, it hurts. But my God knows and he can make it beautiful. The empty tomb speaks a better word over your life that says you don't have to pretend none of it hurts. What you can say is, my God can handle it. (laughs) 
We come together not as a happy, clappy, fake Christian people. We come as a people with resilience and power and hope that death itself can't touch. And so worship. Live a life of exuberant celebration knowing that the one on the throne is slaughtered like a little lamb, but he's standing in power and he's speaking a better word over your life and mine. And friend, if you are here with a family member or because someone invited you and you're wrestling with where does your hope come from, especially in a year like the one you've just endured, run to Jesus. There's no one else in the whole of the cosmos that both understands your pain and can do something about it. No one. But he understands it all the way to the bottom and he can do something with it. He can make it beautiful. And to my brothers and sisters who've said yes to Jesus, let us live distinct, different, full of hope, knowing that even in the midst of our pain and our suffering, he conquers and he will make it beautiful. Let's let our desperate tears turn to exuberant celebration with our eyes on the king. Let's be Easter people. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we in this moment recognize that your wounds are evidence of two things. We are desperate sinners and God loves us. Thank you that you bear those wounds to the glory of your Father. We bless you and we thank you that you came for us when we were not worthy. That you have purchased us by your blood and that we have hope even beyond the grave. I pray that we would worship both in song today, but more importantly, that we would worship with the whole of our lives tomorrow and every day after because we are an Easter people. We know the one who has conquered death. So Jesus, we love you. You're worthy of our worship. I pray that we would truly be worshipers. It's in your name and for your glory that we pray it. Amen. Amen.